Hello, this is Janet from JanetSandberg.com, and you're listening to the Phoenix Wisdom Podcast, the weekly show that talks to peers and professionals who open up about their darkest moments when they felt like ending it all, why they didn't, and how they transformed their lives in order to triumph over the darkness and despair. Please remember to subscribe if you'd like to hear more inspiring stories. Hello and welcome to the Phoenix Wisdom Podcast. This week we are joined by Nicole Shiner, who um, is going to talk to us today from both a personal and professional perspective on what it's like to not want to be here anymore and getting through all of that. Um, But I'm going to start by letting Nicole just introduce herself real quick. Okay. Hi, everyone. Um, So I am a registered psychotherapist in Ontario, Canada. Um, I'm also a mom to two teens and uh, have been married now for just over 20 years to what I would describe as my best friend. Um, Definitely one of the reasons I'm still here. Um, And uh, I love nature. I'm a highly sensitive person. So I like to spend lots of time in nature. And I, I love to kind of share the wisdom from my wounds and the, the wounds and the wisdom that, uh, that I gain through the work that I've done over the years with, uh, with my clients. Beautiful. I'm so glad that you're here and can, can share all of this wisdom with us. So why don't we start by having you tell us about your own experience? You know, what was going on in your life that made you think that maybe you didn't want to stick around? Yeah, sure. So I guess I think the first time I had uh, thoughts or what we call suicidal ideation uh, would have been when I was in my teens. And uh, fortunately, the thoughts didn't go into a plan um, or any self-harming, but I, there's a lot of, a lot of nights and and maybe days, uh, the weekend where I just sat with this feeling like, like I was different, like I didn't fit in. And as I've talked to more highly sensitive people, uh, both friends, as well as teens that I've supported, that can be a really common thing because we Mm -hmm. feel more deeply and, almost like we're wise beyond our years and so we don't necessarily feel like we connect with our peers and what it is that they're uh what they're focused on and so one Mm -hmm. of the things was I love to learn but I would kind of get made fun of for that and um I also saw a lot of pain in in my family and different stressors that they were dealing with and kind of felt that sense of responsibility that I should somehow be able to take that pain away, um, make them feel better. And when I couldn't do that, I really felt like there was something wrong with me. Like it brought up feelings of, of shame of not being good enough. And um, so that was a time when the, the thoughts would go to, you know, maybe people would be better off without me, you know, and just kind of Mm -hmm. questioning my, my worth and, um, 
and why I was even here. Um, wow. And then that's sorry. I'm just like, no, that's no, go ahead, so much go pressure to put on yourself. Like, obviously, as a teenager, it's not your job to rescue other people. But to feel that so deeply at that age that, you know, oh, I can't, I can't help these grownups in their grownup situations that, oh, yeah, I feel that. I feel that. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely been, been a theme that has come up in, in work with, uh, with clients, you know, I tend to attract a lot of sensitive, (laughs) sensitive women and yeah, just this feeling like not knowing what's mine, what's yours and not Mm -hmm. really having that, that guidance to separate that out and to, you know, help to work through the feelings without sort of then feeling responsible for for other people. Um, Yeah. So our, our identity can kind of get tied up in that. And with it, that sense of worth, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so then I guess um, early motherhood was another time when um, I describe them as kind of dark thoughts, you know, that Mm -hmm. again, that feeling like, um, like I was failing as a mom. And I realized it was because I was, I had internalized all of these unrealistic expectations. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think also being a mental health professional, there was this added pressure that like, I should be able to do this. You know, I could show up and be so caring and compassionate to my clients. And then I could easily get triggered by one of my children and, and found myself yelling at times and, and just felt awful about that. And, um, when we were struggling with some of that, um, worries about, you know, my son hurting my daughter and, and not being able to, you know, sort of, I don't like the word control, but that was Mm -hmm. sort of how I had internalized at that time, control that, um, that behavior. What I understand now is it's all about co-regulation. And, um, I was struggling because I hadn't really been guided around self-regulation. So, um, uh, there was a lot of shoulds and it was, exhausting. And I did just couldn't feel like I was living up to this um, expectation, right? The societal mm-hmm. expectation, the, um, the comparison, you know, that, mm-hmm. that I was seeing and hearing my friends weren't really talking about how tough parenting was. And so it made it hard for me to share some of that. And this was kind of before like social media was a really big thing. And Mm -hmm. um, we were challenging some of these things and at work um, it was kind of just minimized as like, Oh, it's just stress. It's just normal, natural stress. And part of me really wonders if I had, if I was struggling with post actual post postpartum mood disorder, um, and so that was a really, that was a really hard and, and painful time because I wanted to be a mom so bad mm-hmm. and, um, you know, now I had these. And then it wasn't people. perfect. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And I, I, I worried so much about like what impacts that, you know, that was going to have on them. And it was a time that was challenging in in my marriage because we struggled sometimes in terms of how to 
how to respond, how to parent, you know, in the most effective ways, um, based on, you know, kind of what we knew or what we were learning or, um, what we've experienced. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That that's also really tough. I remember just on the note of, you know, before social media, when we didn't really talk about the big things as much. And I remember one time my mom telling me how, you know, she had to be perfect. Um, So I was born in the early seventies and, you know, so she's got two kids and her house has to be spotless all the time. She has to have a full meal on the table every night at dinner. Like the expectations then were just completely off the chart, unrealistic. And she felt so much pressure. And of course she did it. Yeah. But like there, there was no talk about it back then about how unrealistic and how difficult that was, even though they were home all day and they weren't working and um, all of that. But I remember she told me and I was like, but why? Like, that's, that's dumb was my teenager response, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> but there was no, and no talk about mental health and how damaging that was for her and everybody else like her, that they just constantly had to live up to these unrealistic expectations. And I think those expectations are still there. They're just different. You know, yeah. now it's the, you know, putting notes in your kids' lunchboxes and and all of the Etsy mom kind of things that are still there that a lot of women feel like they have to do in order to be a good mom and a good wife and a good person. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think we, we're fed the message that being a good mom really means you have to be perfect, which is an impossible expectation to live up to. So you constantly feel like, like you're failing and, and, and then we internalize that, right. Mm-hmm. And, and feel that sense of shame. And then it just, you know, we're, we try to be perfect to protect ourselves from shame, <laughs> but then what ends up happening is we, it ends up, you know, we get in this vicious cycle of, of feeling even more shame. And, and that's why that's like one of my passions now is to really, uh, to, to challenge that. And in a way that is in no way, um, judging moms, right? Like this is, this is not our fault. This is, this is the messages that we have been receiving, um, you know, even as little girls, right? Like you said, seeing our mothers like that um, and just, you know, in different ways, the bar continues to be set high. And, and now the benefit of social media is that you have some of this information coming out, but the, um, the pain or the impact is also that there's all of this comparisons, right? And so even if you think like, okay, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, you know, th- things are pretty good. And, and then you go um, online and you, and it's so easy to start comparing and seeing, oh my goodness, but they did this and they did that and they did, you know, and it can take away from that, you know, sort of internal sense of, um, of knowing and trusting uh, that, we are ultimately the experts on ourselves and, and, you know, know what's best for, for our family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that like, I um, feel now as someone who is a solopreneur, 
that's another area where that pressure can come up and that feeling of not doing enough and therefore not being good enough. And I find it such an interesting journey because um, I've chosen this path in order to move away from, you know, sort of the hustle culture and to be able to really honor uh, as a sensitive person that, um, and someone who's recovered from burnout that I, I need a slower pace. I need, you know, I need more flexibility. Um, and so not being super busy is a goal. And then at the same time, it can trigger some shame. Like, why am I not busier? Like, you know, yeah, what's yeah. wrong with me? I'm not successful enough, whatever. And so it's so interesting how, um, even, you know, when we are trying to follow and honor that inner path, we're just constantly inundated with these messages that we should be doing more, we should know more, you know, and it's never enough. And I think that is just knowing that that's coming from out there and externalizing that I think is, is so important. Yes, absolutely. So how did you how did you get past those, those feelings of, of, we'll use the proper term, suicidal ideation, um, when you were a teenager, before so you had a, all of your professional knowledge to help you through? Yeah. So as a teen, I think really what saved me and, and, um, prevented me from, you know, from any kind of self-harming was the fact that I allowed myself alone. I, I didn't do it with other people so much, but I allowed myself alone to cry. So I did a lot of journaling and a lot of crying. And so even though I didn't want to burden my family uh, with the feelings, I felt like, you know, my, my journals were sort of like this sacred place where I could just let it all out. And in doing that, it, I could see that it was temporary and I could, I could sort of learn to ride these waves and that there was this intensity um, of emotion, but it didn't last forever. And if I could be with it and move through it, I, I actually would feel better. Um, and, and then I just continued to pursue my education, you know, and, and, and that love of learning, like I just, I honor that. I read a lot too. I love to read. So I think in some ways that was an escape. Mm -hmm. um, and in other ways, maybe through the different stories, it was, it was inspiring or maybe even validating or normalizing some of the challenges because I was always drawn to um, stories that had to do with human dynamics and interpersonal relationships and, you know, that, that kind of thing. So um I, th I think, yeah, that having that and when I've worked with teens um, and even adults, you know, that um, being able to be with emotion, that raw emotion, the, that sadness that and hold space for it and, and maybe offer ourselves some compassion. I think it's just it can be so healing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Journaling, especially, you know, when I was younger, um, was was invaluable 
And, you know, I kept a journal from the age of 14, probably up until probably for 20 years. Um, And just getting all of that out um, when I was down or thinking, thinking those thoughts, just like, and it just helps you sort of sort through them. Like, why am I feeling this? Why am I thinking these thoughts? Um, It just, yeah, yeah, it helps to just get it out because I find for me, when it's just me in my head, I just start circling and spiraling and like just coming back to the same thing and not really getting anywhere. Whereas once you start writing it down, it helped me to kind of move through it and, and move, move forward rather than just staying in the same place with these same feelings and thoughts, just coming back upon themselves. Yeah. And I think, you know, as human beings, we're, we're meaning makers and storytellers, right? So, you know, the, the, the thoughts aren't always based in truth, right? Mm -hmm. And so sometimes being able to, to get them out creates a bit of distance um, as well, you know, from them, so like what you were saying, like, oh my goodness, like a teenager can't be responsible for all the, you know, all the other people in the household and, and, you know, their well-being and, and all of that. And so, and yet if we don't have a way to be able to kind of reflect on those and to see, oh, that's, yeah, that's a story that's not actually true. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think journaling has been something that's helped uh with that and then also sometimes um I would write back to myself almost you know and and say some of those um kinder loving things right that uh maybe I was needing to hear uh, but for you know for various reasons um didn't didn't reach out for that right Mm -hmm. and then later um, in your life when you had the kids and, and you were working as a professional and how did you, did, did being, we kind of touched on this before, but was like working in the mental health field. Did that help you get through things when you were older or did that just make it more confusing? Uh, well, I mean, what I think it helped me was it gave me exposure to practices and tools that really helped me with my self-regulation and being able to offer myself self-compassion. So kind of learning some of the things that like we call reparenting or growing up again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, I would, I stumbled upon a, uh, a workshop, for example, an online workshop on self-compassion and that led to further training. And so I was doing it both as a way to enhance my skill set with my clients, but it was definitely something that I knew that, that I needed and started implementing right away and found that, you know, that made a huge difference. And um, one of the main tenets of self-compassion is mindfulness. And so I had been reading some of the research about the benefits of mindfulness, I'd been starting to talk to clients about mindfulness, but uh, it wasn't until I took that training that I realized I I need to actually have a mindfulness practice myself. So I started, I started doing that and, um, 
And through that practice, just even giving myself 10 minutes in the morning before I jumped into all of my caregiving roles, I started to create some space to remember that I am more than a mother and that, that my needs matter too. And so as I started to create some of that space and start to identify some of the things that, um, that I needed and that would help me to thrive, then it became easier to sort of start to uh, take a little bit of, of a step back in a way. Like I was, you know, probably one of those micromanaging, you know, spending all my time with the kids and, and step back and start to do a few things for my, for myself. Um, and of course, as they've gotten older, that's become easier, easier to do. Um, and so in that process, you know, like they could struggle and I wasn't personalizing that as much, you know, mm -hmm. and then therefore it was easier to kind of be with them in their struggle and advocate for them in their struggle without it being a reflection that I'm a bad mom. Yes. So when you say mindfulness, what does that look like? I know a lot of people sort of associate mindfulness with meditation, but right. there's obviously a lot more than meditation. And that's often not the first thing that that's the easiest to start with. So what are, right. what are some other things when you talk about having, you know, 10 minutes of mindfulness in the morning? What is, what could that yeah. look like? Yeah. So for me, it, it was kind of a, a, I would say a meditative practice, but it really became a way of living mindfully. Um, and so it was, I would essentially just sit on my couch and, uh, I don't even think I listened to music at that time. It was just quiet time. And sometimes I would offer myself, um, you know, sort of some affirmations. Uh, I might do the loving kindness meditation. Mm -hmm. uh, may I be well, may I be safe. May, may I be free from suffering. May I be at peace. Um, that was one of the things that I learned through the self-compassion training. And then you can expand that to include, you know, to include other people as well. Um, I also practiced the serenity prayer um, as a way of reminding me that like I can't control everything and I mm -hmm. I realized that that need for control is coming from my anxiety and so really working with uh, my anxiety as well was was really important but coming back to the mindfulness piece um, my thoughts you know would go all over the place and fortunately because of my training I knew that that was normal and it was okay and I could just you know, gently bring myself back, however long it took. Um, and then I would try um, to slow down, for example, if I felt, if I started to feel anxious and like we were running late, uh, I would do the opposite and uh, slow down and, and to lean into being with, you know, being with the children um, rather than you know, putting that pressure on them because it, we would get into these sort of mm -hmm. you know, reactivity cycles almost, right? They would yes. my and then they would react. You know? So that was really helpful walking. We would walk to school every day and that was really a mindful um, activity and a really restorative as well because any of, you know, any stress or tension from the morning, we could all let it go. I used to say like, let's let mother nature work her magic and you mm -hmm. know, kind of cleanse us here in this moment. And it was like pausing and noticing when my roses were starting to bloom and just take a moment to appreciate um, the beauty of it. 
and the mm-hmm. unfolding of it, or even when I would do dishes to, um, you know, feel, have the sensory experience of washing those dishes or laundry, you know, laundry became this um, sacred experience of gratitude. You know, these clothes I was folding was the people that I loved um, and that loved me and that were growing and were healthy. And, uh, and that, that changed it from sort of some of the overwhelm or the resentment I was feeling at all Mm -hmm. of these tasks. Um, And then of course, getting, getting them involved too. mindfulness for me was also about being mindful of what emotions were coming up for me and what information those emotions had in terms of what changes we might need to make in, in the family to make sure that things, you know, things felt fair and that I wasn't taking on all the responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Like doing dishes and just like, oh my gosh, this warm water feels so good, you know, (laughs) and, and, and going out for a walk, you know, it's so easy to go out for a walk, but still stay stuck in your head. So when, and, and I sort of force myself to do this when I'm out for a walk and look at all the houses I'm passing in the neighborhood and what's different and unique about each one of them. It's like, oh, well, they have a little wooden welcome sign and they have a turquoise front door and they have, you know, and just noticing. And that takes me out of my head and into the space that I am walking through. Um, yeah. And even though I, you know, I may not be able to get out for a nature hike, which is even that much better, but it's just noticing and being immersed in what's around me and where I am in that moment, rather than just, you know, staying stuck in the to-do list that never ends. And the the overwhelm of everything, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think sometimes that the the dark thoughts or that part of us that is saying like, ah, I can't do this. I can't, you know, it's, it's, it's trying to protect us from the overwhelm. It's trying to say like, um, there's too much here. There's too much pressure. There's too much, you know? And so, um, yeah, you know, as, as our mutual friends last shared, like something has to die. Right. And for me, it's, I think these, these expectations, you know, that we've internalized, right. That, are um, setting us up to never feel good enough, right? And so mm-hmm. working to, and I, it's, it's an ongoing process, but working to um, let that perfectionism, you know, not necessarily die, but, you know, not have so much, you know, so much control, right? Or to not, um, to let that, that need to, to fit in and be accepted, to um, have that replaced by, can I belong to myself? Can I accept and see some of these things that maybe people made fun of? Um, you know, can I, can, can I embrace them? Can I celebrate them? Uh, and, and then sort of, we find our people. <laughs> Uh, so that was a journey too of, of shifting from not wanting to, to be alone and needing to be with people to feel like that I was okay, I was worthy to, you know, purposely uh, 
choosing how I spent my time and spending more time in, in solitude and then wrestling with, you know, um, am I, am I worthy of this time just by myself doing quote unquote, nothing, right. What, and, and FOMO, right. What am I missing out on? And, and then again, bringing, coming back to mindfulness in terms of, um, can I really be in this moment and, and, and enjoy this moment, whether it's watching, watching or playing with my children or, you know, having an experience uh, in nature, which brings me so much joy. And I would far rather do that than some of the, you know, more maybe exciting things that other people are out there doing. Um, and so that I think has been really for me and for clients has been really important in terms of, you know, um, coming home, you know, kind of coming home to our, to ourselves and, and reclaiming parts of ourselves that, um, others or society tells us are, there's something wrong with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We are all perfect the way we are. We are all meant to be here. We are all valuable. Just, yeah. just the way we are. And to, to just block out that noise and, fall in love with ourselves again in, in our own, I want to say perfection without, you know, <laughs> the, the feeling that we need to be perfect because we already are mm -hmm. and just, yeah, accepting and loving who we are. And sometimes it takes being alone. Sometimes being alone is scary. Um, mm -hmm. And, and sometimes we keep ourselves purposely busy to keep our thoughts from spiraling down to that dark place. But sometimes that's exactly what we need to do is to just be alone, to appreciate ourselves and spend time with, with ourselves in, in who we are, you know, the, no matter how broken we think we are, you know, if we can love ourselves, then then, you know, we've, we've got the hope that we can, we can move forward from there. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's, it's remembering that it, it's an ongoing process, right? Um, and we're, no one, no one is 100%, you know, um, loving and accepting of all aspects of themselves, right? Like everyone struggles with, you know, no matter how quote unquote perfect their life might appear uh, on the outside, um, you know, everyone has insecurities, everyone has self-doubts, everyone has moments where, you know, they don't feel, feel enough. And I think that, when we judge ourselves for those feelings uh, because we don't realize that other people are feeling that way too. Again, it's not our fault, but it can bring us even further down a shame spiral. And the more of that sense of shame that we feel, I think that's when we're more vulnerable to, you know, to not feeling worthy of belonging and, and being here. And so sometimes I find it's really helpful just to, um, you know, send a message to a friend and I'll say like, you, 
I know you're really busy. You don't have to reply. I'm just sharing. I'm in this space. And like, I know I can get through it, but it like, it shines out some of that shame. I remind myself that, you know, that I'm not alone. Um, or like I said, I'll use my journal as a way of kind of, you know, almost uh, connecting with that part that is feeling those feelings, just reminding them like, hey, it's going to be okay. This is temporary, right? And I know that there are, there can be bigger contextual issues that people face that, you know, doesn't feel like there is an endpoint. Um, it's ongoing, but I think even there, there's moments right? There's moments, whether it's chronic pain that people are experiencing or, you know, other struggles, there's still, there's still moments, there's still pockets or what in polyvagal they refer to as glimmers, like little things, little experiences that we can have that can bring us back into, you know, a state of, you know, feeling safe enough, feeling connected, seeing some of the beauty, some of the possibility, giving us a bit of a sense of peace, right? And so it's not that it's realizing like, it's not that we're ever going to be happier or at peace fully, or, you know, um, it's, we're always, we're always kind of riding these waves. And if we don't read too much into them um, and look for what opportunities there might be when some of that stuff comes up, like now when these thoughts come up, I see them as, okay, this is something that I need to release. This is something that I need to heal through as opposed to this is true. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That awareness of, oh, you know, here, here are these thoughts again Mm -hmm. and, and looking to the outside, what's going on in my life right now. That's making me feel this way. What can Mm -hmm. I change? What needs attention? Right, right. Because sometimes it is a a toxic environment or an abusive partner, or, you know, we're not on the right path. You know, we're, we're doing the, the job or the activities that we think we should, Mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, loneliness, right? Like the, that can be huge too, right? So on the one hand, yes, it's being comfortable with ourselves. And on the other hand, it's remembering that we are communal beings, right? We're meant to be in community and connection. And, and so that's one thing for, for me, since um, starting my own private practice is finding ways to stay connected to community and in-person community. So for me, that's been some volunteer and it's been really, really great um, to, be able to give back. And, and I uh, work with some kids in uh, the strong start to reading program and they bring me so much joy. (laughs) It's like one of the highlights of my week. And I think just seeing them young and innocent and so full of potential Mm -hmm. uh, is, is such a gift. And so I think that's another area where when, when we're struggling in that way and, and as a way of getting outside of, you know, the smallness of kind of ourselves and our own problems is, you know, not to get overwhelmed by the problems in the world, but to see like, is there somewhere where, you know, I can make a difference. It doesn't have to be financial. It can be through our presence, right? It can be through uplifting someone, but I think that can, um, that can help so much in shifting, you know, even if it's just temporary, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, 
I think for me, and I'm, I'm hoping for some of our listeners, you know, knowing that people who are in the mental health field struggle as well. Like nobody is immune from, from having dark thoughts sometimes and, and not wanting to be here. And it, it doesn't, yeah. And it, it, I'm just going to leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody is immune. Let's just leave it at that. Um, So I really, really thank you for your, your wisdom and your insight and your openness. Um, And yeah, thank you for being here. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And one of the things that I just want to leave, leave uh, listeners with is, you know, there is more to your story, right? So sometimes we can, you know, not even consciously, but on a, you know, on a brain, body, nervous system level, we can get stuck at the worst part of an experience, but there is more to this story. And, and sometimes I find reading memoirs, um, watching shows of people's lives to be able to see the rest of the story can be really helpful when, you know, we're stuck in not knowing, well, how can this get better? You know, and we're struggling to, um, to have hope, right? Uh, especially for someone who's maybe a bit younger and, and doesn't, you know, doesn't have those sources of inspiration. I find um, hearing other people's stories and reading through, and that's why, you know, that's why I was inspired to, to share and, and, and to come on and support the podcast, because I think it is so important for people to remember that, right? Um, that there's so much, so more. many of us have dark moments. We have wishes or, or plans to end our lives, but we get through it and we keep going. And, and now here we are and life is not good all the time, but you know, we're, we're glad that we're still here because there's, there's more to the story. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Remember that you are loved, you are worthy, you are valuable, you are meant for more, and that it really does get better. If you are in crisis, there are numbers that you can call or text to get the help that you need. That information for Canada and the U.S. is in the description below each episode. If you are in immediate crisis, please call 911. We love you, and I hope you'll listen again.